Hello and welcome to Making Up the Storm, the podcast chronicling one grad student's quest to study for his comprehensive exams. And uh, today we're going to be continuing with my mini-series on uh, 18th century Britain. Now, this mini-series is not arranged like a lecture class, so it doesn't necessarily have the same sense of build-up and, you know, argument that the last mini-series had. So you can just dip into it whenever you want. I'm not telling you to go back to the very beginning and listen from episode one. The theme of this uh, is that I'm going to be asking myself questions about broad areas of my interest that I might get on the exam. And then I'm going to be trying to answer them um, maybe in a little bit more of an extended way than I would in the exam, but uh, hopefully with the same kinds of points and the same kinds of evidence. So today I'm going to be asking a question about popular culture. And as I was preparing for this, I had what I thought was like a pretty good question. And it was, how does the story of British history that you're telling change if you look at the perspective of everyday life? And that's uh, the, an the, the question that I'm answering today. But as I sat down to record this, I uh, looked at that and I imagined my uh, advisor who's going to be reading this exam looking at that question and furrowing up his face and doing that like half smile head shake that he does when he thinks I've done something, you know, stupid or straightforward. So I thought, uh, I mean, there's a couple other ways that we could get into this uh, topic. One is to ask just the simple what happens to everyday life in the 18th century with all of the changes that are occurring, which is basically the same question that I originally proposed. Uh, another way that you can pitch it is uh, the fact is that in the 18th century, you have something that seems novel. People get an interest in popular culture. Scare quotes are around that. The uh, activities of the rural poor, uh, traditional activities, so-called. Um, and the idea was that people got an interest in it because they perceived it to be declining. And so why did people think that popular culture was declining? Was it? And if it wasn't, then why did people think that it was declining? That's another way that we might be able to get into this question. If you have any good questions, email them to me or tweet them at me or you know how to get into contact with me and I'll, I'll answer them. So I'm going to tackle this topic of how does the story that I'm telling change if you look at everyday life. And I'm going to uh, arrange this by first uh, talking about what's at stake, then by running uh, through three different historiographical views, so three different uh, opinions about what actually happened to everyday life. And then I'm going to give my own view of what happened in which I see, as I see most things, as changing due to shifts in the way that people organize themselves and in their relationship with the environment and the ecology and cheap energy. I'm going to start with a survey of the historiography. Remember, historiography is the special name that historians give to historians talking about other historians. So the first big camp about this question is I'm calling the Industrial Revolution Changed Everything question. This is actually, I think, um, two different camps of uh, scholars who are in some ways diametrically opposed to one another, but they both agreed about the fundamental changes to everyday life being driven by a single thing, the Industrial Revolution. 
These two groups of scholars are Marxists and modernization theorists, and this is a little bit of an older view, popular more in the 60s, 70s, and maybe even the 80s. The idea was that the Industrial Revolution changed the material base of things. It changed what really mattered, the economy. And because everything flows from the economy, uh, culture, politics, etc., when you change the economy, you necessarily change popular culture. Enclosures ended traditional rural sports that took place on common land. Now, instead, you have football arranged around the new center of human life, the factory. Um, the bonds of rural deference are uh, undermined by uh, commercialization, and instead of having, say, an open house at Christmas where the manorial lord would give everybody uh, drink and mead and talk with them and, you know, be patronizing in the best w sense of that word, instead you have the elites putting distance between themselves and uh, the people on their land because of the rising tide of commercialization in the money economy. You have a number of different uh, scholars here. You can mention E.P. Thompson and his work on popular culture. Uh, you can mention um, Malcolmson and his work on popular culture. You can also add into this uh, Hobsbawm's um, investigation of invented traditions. Uh, Hobsbawm says that uh, modernity erases a lot of the um, rituals that undergird daily life, and this leaves kind of a blank hole, because since we're animals, since we're humans, we need a kind of ritual undergirding to uh, make everything make sense for us. And in its space uh, of this, you know, fallow field of ritual, capitalism and the nation create new kinds of rituals, new kinds of holidays, new kinds of customs that are backdated, um, that we assume are of older vintage. Examples of this are the Victorian Christmas, um, which we think of as very traditional, as very old, but are really just like 150 years old, these particular practices. Um, other traditions include coronations, and you can go through a whole list of them, and I will not. Of course, the critiques of this are that it paints too stark a division between traditional and modern life, which we know is kind of simplistic, and it really makes all of the people who we're looking at um, more pawns than actors. They're subject to the changes in the economy, and they don't do anything. Um, they're more passive, and that's not how we know that human life works. The second big view that I want to look at is uh, the Annals School. Um, the Annals School is a, a French school of uh, history of the long durée, and for them, instead of looking at uh, uh, just tiny little events, they wanted to look at the long-term structure of life, of what they called civilizations. For Braudel, the uh, you know doyen of the Annals School, who really gave me the inspiration to uh, you know do history as a profession, for Braudel, there's three big layers of life stacked one on top of the other. The first layer. And the biggest is the material life of the everyday. The second layer is the market of, of uh, interpersonal exchange. And then the third layer, which is thin and like icing, is capitalism itself, uh, the money economy, the economy of stock markets, uh, uh, which is very different to the other three layers. But let's focus on that big, gigantic bottom layer of material life. 
For Braudel, this layer is incredibly resistant to change. Even when it does change in some places, like cities or uh, uh, even small towns, uh, it's still unable to get everywhere. Braudel describes walking through a village when he was young in the 1930s and walking down a, a pathway to a stream looking at peasant women carrying wheat like peasant women did in the 16th century and imagining that the scene that he saw could have happened in the 16th century. There was, of course, now differences. There was modernity creeping in in places, but modernity was something that happened unevenly. Furthermore, there's a lot of structural stuff to daily life that does not change. The vast majority of this does not change uh, with the advance of modernity or the Industrial Revolution. In the same areas where people ate bread and oil and cheese and chickpeas 2,000 years ago, so too today do people eat bread and oil and cheese and chickpeas, often in the same ways. This is... Uh, subject to slow changes, of course, the adoption of New World plants, the important breakthrough in the Malthusian trap, but it is resistant to change overall. For the Annel school, then, popular culture might change in some respects, but in the important respects, it is more glacial. If we want to really look at how it changes, we shouldn't look at a single century, but say on the timescale of 500, 1,000, even 2,000 years. And if we do that, we might instead of seeing, you know, sudden leaps and sudden drastic changes, see slow cycles of particular kinds of behavior. The third uh, historiographical school that I just want to point out is uh, what I'm going to be inelegantly calling contemporary cultural history. And this perspective sees a different reason for being interested in the daily life of people and popular culture. For them, they see a lot of the other concerns of historians, uh, politics let's say, as arising out of the ritual and symbolic interaction of daily life. And because of that, then changes in daily life, changes in the uh, operating system of this symbol and ritual are incredibly important to other kinds of changes. So uh, everyday behavior like uh, changes in words, in games, in living patterns have intense consequences for the rest of the symbolic system. It's an inversion of the Marxist view, let's say. The Marxist view sees the economy as changing everything. This view sees the symbolic system as changing everything, and so if we look at the everyday life of the symbolic system, we can see uh, the roots of some important changes. This group is more likely to see change as partial, as contested, as being prey to contingent uh, uh, situations, although still uh, one gets the feeling of seeing a sandcastle being run over by a steamroller. So I want to just outline my view of what I think happens with popular culture. And I'm going to divide this up into two general areas. The first is changes in organization, and the second is changes to ecology and energy. So first with organization, there's a number of things that happen to people that make them change their uh, recreational activities. First is that um, people start to learn new modes of behavior that are more amenable to the modular, urban, modern style of living and organization. So 
Uh, traditional activities are usually organized around the pleasures of excess, of consumption, of public display. So old Christmas had 12 days of drinking and feasting where you'd go off with your neighbors and, you know, eat lots and lots of, of beef. This is in some ways incompatible with new norms of civility and self-control that grow up around the rise of middle-class uh, professionals in cities. Instead, you get uh, pastimes that privilege sobriety, order, complexity, and control. The new thing is not that there are groups of people who exclude other people to have fun. That happened in the 17th century, the 15th century, it happened forever. The new thing is that these groups, instead of privileging this kind of riotous Dionysian excess, instead privilege more careful acts. The thing that I will mention is, of course, the rise of bell ringing, but you also get the rise of uh, new kinds of betting activities, new, more complicated card games. Um, I shouldn't say that because I can't actually uh, mention a particular card game. Um, but you also get a rise in new kinds of sports like croquet that are uh, more civilized, more controlled. And I want to emphasize why this change happens. This comes on a crest of the rise of other kinds of organizations, and these organizations are more often than not arranged on new kinds of uh, uh, foundations that allow them to be more powerful, more controlled. And these organizations compete for space and for people's time with the old kinds of traditions that are far less organized, that are more customary. And this is the reason why you get a slow shift. Um, an example is bear baiting. Bear baiting uh, is a really gross practice in which you have a bear and then you have dogs attack that bear. Um, there's also bull baiting where you have a bull and then you have you know, dogs attacking that bull. And it was incredibly popular in the beginning of the 18th century. Uh, you, we can tell this because people would pay for bull and bear baiting rings in the center of the market. Um, and people would talk about their dogs that they'd breed to do bull and bear baiting, like bulldogs. Uh, and they would invest quite heavily in it. However, as the 18th century goes on, we definitely see a decline in the amount of money that people spend on uh, changing, uh, on keeping up these bull and bear baiting rings. The old story said that this was a reaction to uh, civil society organizations that were pushing a broadly humanitarian aim, that people saw that the violence done to animals was bad and they wanted to change it as a project of moral reform. The problem with that is that moral reform happened in blips and it didn't really seem to catch on. Um, it happened with the uh, at the beginning of the 18th century and then again at the end. This view sees the change otherwise. It sees it as a result of con uh, uh, contestation between organizations. The thing about bull and bear baiting is that it takes place in the public, in the market. Uh, it's customary. It has a tragedy of the common situation. Private organizations arranging pastimes like assembly halls, coffee houses, um, even private drinking societies are organized, and so they have techniques to avoid the tragedy of, of, of the commons. And they're more able to aggressively compete for public and private spaces and for public and private attention. Organized associations can advertise, say, in the newspaper and get people to come to these situations. 
uh, organizations can change their outlook to adopt to changing sources of demand. A change-ring society, for example, when other change-ring societies are participating in uh, ringing competitions, can start to do ringing competitions. Customary forms of tradition um, don't have that flexibility. And also, we have a further point, um, which we're going to get to at the very end, which is that in this time period, you have the expansion of national and international markets that creates a national market for culture. Now I'm going to talk briefly about energy. Uh, one of the things here in this like energy and ecology section is that you do get a shift in what people are doing with the land. Two big things are that people are moving into cities and that even within uh, rural areas, people are working less and less in agriculture. The big top line view is that people are working harder and harder so that they can access a greater amount of stuff. But this stuff is not the stuff that people uh, indulged in before they uh, adopted this new industrious habit of working. The new kinds of stuff that people were buying with their newly found money through these industrious revolutions was stuff that gave them the pleasure of comfort rather than the pleasure of display. Things that you could consume within the domestic home rather than things that you just consumed out in public to mark your status. Think of spending money um, on uh, buying pianos and piano lessons and Latin tutoring for your children rather than inviting your neighbors around for a blowout feast to celebrate your child's 18th birthday. And there's a lot of stuff here that I could talk about with urbanization um, and moral reform, but I think that I'm running out of time. Um, this is 17 minutes long, and I really should have an answer that's three minutes. So I'm going to shift on finally to uh, uh, my final little bit. If everything that I said was true, and that popular culture was changing more to do with changes in uh, people's relationship with the land and with food and with people's uh, uh, enmeshment in organizations. Why did people think that popular culture was changing at the time? Well, I think that there's a caveat that we can give before we get stuck in, and that's that people always think that popular culture is changing. We have a tendency to fix the practices that happen in our youths as normal. We identify that as the way that things should be. And then as we grow up and customs do what customs do and slowly change, and as we change, and as we go through the stations of our lives and maybe move place, we look back and we get nostalgic and we go, things aren't how they used to be, eh? But that's a process that happens over and over again with each generation that comes through uh, the cycle of life. Raymond Williams in uh, uh, Country in the City has a great chapter in which he shows that each generation of people claims that rural life, traditional rural life, ended a generation ago. We get into this leapfrogging where we go, ah, the good old days, man, the good old days. Um, another example is with Christmas practices. Ronald Hutton um, pointed out that uh, traditional rituals like the wassail bowl are actually relatively recent. He shows people calling it new in the 15th century, and then 30, 40 years later, people call it an ancient practice with a deep tradition. So we just kind of forget the novelty of the things that we do. But 
I do think that there is a way in which everyday life and popular culture is changing dramatically. And I'm going to jump back to organizations here. At, in the 18th century, you have an expansion of the national market, not only in goods and in information, but also of people. Communities that were uh, before simply local, simply organized around a 10-kilometer catchment area of a market town, are now linked up in a network of cities connected to the big hub of London. And this creates a national cultural market. And as we know from organizational sociology, when you get expansions of markets, you get a tendency towards isomorphism, which is a fancy academic word for saying things look the same. We can talk about uh, uh, the actual mechanisms for this maybe later when we talk about organizational sociology, but I think that it's that process of organizational isomorphism that's happening on a larger scale with the 18th century. It's not that traditional is being placed with modern, but instead that national is being replaced with local. This is, of course, always uneven and incomplete, but I think it explains part of the general trend. Thanks very much for listening to this episode of Making of Historian. I have to thank Jonathan Lear for the music. He is on SoundCloud and on Bandcamp. Find his music and give him money. And I also have to thank Duncan Barton for the image. If you like the show, rate and review us on iTunes. Share us with your friends. Um, send me tweets. Do all those things that you do with things that you like on the internet. If you can have any good big questions that I might be asked in my orals exam, send them along to me and I might answer them on a podcast. Um, thanks tons for listening. Um, I'm getting really excited for this final push, and I will speak to you guys later today about war. Yeah.